Luke chapter 11. I say unto you, ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For every one that asketh, receiveth. And he that seeketh, findeth. And to him that knocketh, it shall be opened. For if a son shall ask bread of any of you that is a father, will he give him a stone? Or if he ask a fish, will he for a fish give him a serpent? Or if he shall ask an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? Praise the Lord. My subject today is simply entitled, A Lesson from Chucky. A lesson. Shake hands with someone. Say something really nice to them. And then you can sit down. I hope I don't bore you. Especially the younger ones here. I hope I don't bore you to tears. I'm going to attempt to do something today. I, I uh, will we'll leave it up to uh, about 40 minutes from now. Whether or not I accomplish my task. But uh, for over 45 years... We folks who live in the Detroit area have had front row seats to one of the greatest crime mysteries of all time. What had ever happened to Jimmy Hoffa? Over the years, speculation has included that he was buried in a landfill in New Jersey, cremated in a Pontiac funeral home, Some say he's buried under the end zone in Giants Stadium. Jimmy the Weasel Fradiano said that Tony Giacalone told him and others as they were crossing the street downtown years ago, wave at the Renaissance Center, boys, say hello to Mr. Hoffa. Farms have been dug up. Floors have been torn up trying to find some trace evidence as to where he was slain and eventually buried, all to no avail. Linked forever to this mystery is a man by the name of Chucky O'Brien. Chucky died last week, and I thought it would be fitting for me to tell you a story that I learned from Chucky. Chucky was 86, and with him went the final details and inside information that uh, will help forever seal the fate of a mystery that is never, ever going to be solved. I, like many people, have followed the Hoffa mystery for many years. And uh, as those years have come and gone, the people who really knew what happened have died and carried their secrets with them. I was coming to church today. There's a little church down 17 Mile Road. It's where Tony Giacalone used to go to church. Every Sunday morning when I would come here to church, 
I would see this van parked across the street. It was the Justice Department. They followed Tony Giacalone everywhere he went, including when he went to church. <laughs> but he's gone now. And uh, it's not a mystery in the truest sense of the word. Because the FBI knows, they know what happened. They know why Jimmy Hoffa died. They know who ordered his death. And they know who carried out their orders. They just can't prove it in a court of law. Because it's hard to prove somebody died if you can't find a body. And uh, I came across what to me was a very moving story in the last couple months. And I would like to recount it to you today in hopes that maybe there's a life lesson tucked away in the folds of an interesting character named Chucky O'Brien. But in order for you to understand my lesson, I'm gonna to have to introduce you to this man. His name is Jack Goldsmith. And uh, he is Chucky O'Brien's stepson. And Jack Goldsmith wrote a book several months ago entitled In Hoffa's Shadow. And uh, it's a fascinating read because since July, several years ago, I was, uh, uh, I was with a pastor and he, he wanted to go to lunch. And so I, I said, where do you want to go to lunch? He said, there's a restaurant on Telegraph called the Red Fox. I want to go there for lunch. I had no idea what it was. And uh, so we were there and having lunch and in a back room was a group of men that were laughing and carrying on. And I, I just for whatever, I asked the waiter, I said, who are those men? And he said, you, you don't know what today is, do you? And I said, no, sir, I, I guess I don't. He said, this is the day that Jimmy Hoffa died years ago. And he said he was kidnapped or taken from our parking lot. And he said, every year on this day, those group of men come into this restaurant and have a big party and celebrate the disappearance of Jimmy Hoffa. Since July of 1975, Chucky O'Brien lived under the shadow of rumor that he was the one that picked up Jimmy Hoffa from the parking lot of the Marcus Red Fox and drove him to his execution. 45 years of living under the pall and the burden of a lie that effectively ruined his life. You see, there were two things that mattered to Jimmy Hoffa, as near as I can tell, his family and, uh, and his union, the International Brotherhood of the Teamsters. Jimmy Hoffa didn't smoke, he didn't drink, he never caroused with women. Every night, he took a bath at 9.30, and he was in bed before 10. He lived very simply and modestly in a cottage in Lake Orion. And when Chucky O'Brien was seven years old, his father abandoned him and his mother, Sylvia. And into this very dismal tragedy of this woman and her little boy being abandoned, comes a guy named Jimmy Hoffa. 
And for all, though he never did it legally, Jimmy Hoffa adopted Chucky O'Brien as his own boy. He spent every summer at the cottage in Lake Orion. Hoffa loved to hunt, and Chucky O'Brien went with Jimmy Hoffa on many, many trips into the woods in Michigan. And as Jimmy Hoffa moved up through the ranks of the Teamsters, he made a place for this boy of his at his side. But the plot thickens because Chucky O'Brien's mother was Sicilian, and she had two very, very close friends. One was a guy named Tony Provenzano, that if you know much about the mafia, was simply known as Tony Pro. And the other one was Anthony Giacalone, who ran the mafia in Detroit. They are, uh, the technical term, we call it mafia, but the technical term for mafia is, is an Italian phrase, la cosa nostra, which loosely translates into a phrase, our thing. When people began to flood into this country in the early 1900s, many of them were of Italian descent looking for work. And many times they were treated with great prejudice by the Irish who had preceded them in coming to the country and into this very volatile mix of racism between the Irish and the Italians came a way of dealing with things from the old country. Since they couldn't go to the police because most of them were Irish, they created their own way of settling the score, thus the term our thing or our way of dealing with matters that they viewed as wrong. And they were hit and blindsided immediately with the Great Depression of the 20s. And after that depression was prohibition, when the president passed a law that you couldn't legally sell booze in the United States. And uh, it provided a wonderful opportunity for what is known as the mafia to start selling booze in these speakeasies. And they made a great fortune doing it. And, uh, but prohibition was lifted. And when prohibition was lifted, the illicit sale of booze was over. So they're going to have to find a new cash cow. And they did in gambling and specifically in the moving of goods and services in this country because they realized everybody had to have their trash taken away and everybody's going to need concrete to build a building. And even more than that, everything in this country was moved on wheels and thus the Teamsters who controlled all the trucks that moved goods and services in this country became a target of organized crime in the 40s and 50s. In the 1960s, Jimmy Hoffa became the president of the Teamsters. He was, as near as I can tell, one of the most popular men in America. He was championed as the friend of the working man. The Teamsters grew to become the largest union in the world. 
And into the coffers of this union flowed hundreds of millions of dollars from their dues. In the Detroit area, no one was more involved in this than Tony Giacalone and Tony Provenzano. I found it interesting when I read Chucky O'Brien's comments that when he was a boy, he just called them Uncle Tony. <laughs> Both mobsters, both very violent men, known, you just didn't mess with them. One of our people that are here, Jeff Woodworth, used to work in the Mercedes dealership in Bloomfield, and he just told me about a day a tall, stern, natly-dressed man walked in there and just never said anything, and they all knew who he was. And uh, Jeff said, can I help you? And he said, are you such and such a person? And he said, no. He said, well, then you can't help me. And... Uh, uh, he was stern, and he commanded attention and obedience. Uncle Tony. <laughs> That's all you knew as a kid. Jimmy Hoffa had an enemy when he was the president of the Teamsters. His name was Bobby Kennedy. Bobby Kennedy just happened to be the brother of the president. And his brother made him the top cop's. He literally promoted his brother, who had very little experience. <laughs> he made him Attorney General of the United States. And the new Attorney General was determined to stamp out organized crime and to put Jimmy Hoffa in prison. And eventually he did, even though his brother would have never been president if their father hadn't secured the help of Chicago gangsters who made sure that Jack Kennedy won Illinois and West Virginia and defeated Richard Nixon in 1960, which even to this day is the closest presidential election we've ever had. My grandpa told me about people that came to the coal miners of West Virginia in the 60s and would just hand out $20 bills as they came out of the mine and said, vote for Jack Kennedy. <laughs> it's kind of interesting when I began to study it. Richard Nixon was president when Bobby Kennedy put Jimmy Hoffa in prison. And Jimmy Hoffa paid Richard Nixon, the president, a <laughs> million dollars in order to get out of prison. And guess who took the million dollars in cash to John Mitchell, who was the head of Nixon's reelection committee and ultimately the next attorney general of the United States, the ever loyal stepson by the name of Chucky O'Brien. It's ironic, you see, because Jimmy Hoffa loaned money from the Teamsters Pension Fund to build casinos in Las Vegas. And uh, they say, really, there should be a large statue of Jimmy Hoffa in Las Vegas because he's the guy that really built it. And, uh, but the interesting thing to me was that the loans that Jimmy Hoffa gave to the mafia, he made sure they paid them back, and they paid them back with very heavy interest. 
But Jimmy Hoffa, when he went to prison, handpicked a guy named Frank Fitzsimmons to take his place. And the new president of the Teamsters let the mobsters just take the money at will, and they never paid it back. And it was always very ironic to me that Bobby Kennedy put Hoffa in prison to make sure that there were no mob-controlled Teamsters, when in fact, it was much worse after Hoffa got out of the way. And because he wouldn't go away, when Jimmy Hoffa got out of prison, he was obsessed with one thing. I'm going to get my old job back. But the mob didn't want him to have his old job back. In fact, the new guy that was in there was, of course, giving them more access to money than Hoffa ever had. And so Hoffa very foolishly began threatening them and basically said, if you don't help me get my old job back, I'm going to start talking and I'm going to tell the government just what you people really have done. And on the 30th of July in 1975, Jimmy Hoffa vanished into thin air from the parking lot of a Bloomfield restaurant. For 45 years, his stepson, Chucky O'Brien, still to this day is blamed for picking up Hoffa and taking him to his death because the feds said Hoffa would have never gotten into a car if there wasn't somebody in that car that he knew very well. And they perpetrated the rumor, hoping that by squeezing on Chucky O'Brien, he'd roll over and he'd tell what he knew about the disappearance of Jimmy Hoffa. But Chucky had more integrity than all of them put together. And he would tell anyone that would listen to him, it's all a lie. This is all a lie. These people have been breaking the law. They've done things to me that were illegal. I didn't have anything to do with the disappearance of Jimmy Hoffa, but it all fell on deaf ears. And for almost half a century, Chucky O'Brien was blamed for the death of a man that he dearly, dearly loved. In fact, when Hoffa disappeared, his real son, Jimmy, who was a lawyer, literally told Chucky O'Brien, don't you ever come back to our house again. And at the same time Jimmy Hoffa was disappearing, Chucky O'Brien was falling in love. And his new love had a seven-year-old boy who, like him, had been abandoned by his dad. And Chucky knew all too well the pain involved with being a young boy and just have your dad walk out of your life never to be seen again. And he promised that seven-year-old boy by the name of Jack, I will always love you. I will always be there for you. I will never abandon you. And he legally adopted him. And of course, his name was Jack O'Brien. And while Jack was growing up, his stepdad was forever dealing with the shadow of Jimmy Hoffa. But Jack O'Brien had something going for him. He was a brilliant student. 
He graduated from a, a very prestigious military high school named Pinecrest. And he wanted to be a lawyer. <laughs> and when he got out of high school and was considering going to college, he wasn't just older now, but he was very aware of the scandal that had surrounded his stepdad for the last 10 years. And he was savvy enough to know, how in the world am I ever going to be a lawyer and I want to work for the government one day? How am I ever going to get a job like that if my stepdad is the guy that played a role in killing Jimmy Hoffa? So Jack O'Brien changed his name to Jack Goldsmith which was ironically the name of the dad who had abandoned him. He ended up in England going to an amazing university called Oxford. Came back with a bachelor's from Oxford and was accepted into Yale. Got a Juris Doctorate from Yale University. All this time distancing himself from his stepdad who he was thoroughly ashamed of because of his lack of education and, and his stumbling vocab vocabulary. And, and now Jack was completely convinced of the complicity of his stepdad in Hoffa's disappearance. It was a knife to the heart of this very gentle guy, it seems, by the name of Chucky O'Brien. Because not only had he lost his dad when he was a boy... And his former family, which was Hoffa's family that had loved him as their own, and now wants nothing to do with him. He now has lost the boy that he raised and loved at his very own. And that kid just won't talk to him for over 20 years. So now enter 9-11 and radical Islam. And desperate times call for desperate measures. And the CIA was waterboarding terrorists in order to get information. I've spent a lot of time in the water over the years. I, I know what it's like to be in situations where it seems like you're drowning. And uh, they turn you upside down, put a rag on your face, and just start dumping water on you. You think you're going to drown. You won't, but you think you're going to drown. And it so terrified the terrorist that they started giving up information. <laughs> and uh, George Bush is the president. George Bush has an attorney general by the name of John Ashcroft, the top cop. And they give Ashcroft an assignment. You've got to figure out a way to prove that waterboarding is legal. You've got to find a way so when America finds out about what we're doing, and they are going to find out about what we're going to do, about what we're doing, I want to be able to prove to them it's legal. So Ashcroft knew that he needed some help, and he heard about a brilliant young lawyer who had impeccable credentials from Oxford and Yale University by the name of Jack Goldsmith. And Jack Goldsmith was given the task, go through every legal brief that you can find to prove that it's okay for us to waterboard terrorists. 
And he said as hard as he tried, twisted, turned, and controlled everything he could, there was just no way that he could prove that we were legal in doing what we were doing with these terrorists. And he said that one night late in the Library of Congress, when he was weary, trying to go through hundreds of briefs, he had pretty much exhausted every means that he could, and he came to the end of a legal brief, and at the bottom was a notation that said, for further information, refer to Hoffa versus the United States and O'Brien versus the United States. And he got access to secret FBI files that had been sealed since 1962. The files, the secret files of the Justice Department from Bobby Kennedy's reign as Attorney General. And there, never ever divulged or disclosed, was the proof that his stepdad was telling the truth. And that Bobby Kennedy, though the Attorney General of the United States, had repeatedly broken the law because he was obsessed with getting Jimmy Hoffa. And they were convinced that one of the ways to do that was through Chucky O'Brien. And this now 40-year-old lawyer, Oxford graduate, Juris Doctorate from Yale, high up, actually going to the Oval Office, realizes that his stepdad was telling the truth all of these years. And he said it was like a giant rock that fell on him because he realized that his stepdad, though he didn't have good grammar, and though for all practical purposes was simply a union thug, Jack, who now regularly goes to church, has two sons of his own who he made sure had nothing to do with their grandfather, realized that his grandfather was in fact a better Christian than he was. And so he made his way with his family to Florida and had Thanksgiving with his mother, Sylvia Pagano, and Chucky O'Brien. Or Sylvie Pagano was Chucky O'Brien's mom. They're sitting on a couch watching a football game after Thanksgiving dinner. And Jack Goldsmith turns to his stepfather and he began to cry and he said, I owe you an apology. I was so wrong. And you were telling, and before he could finish the sentence, he said his stepdad began to weep and just grabbed him and embraced him and said, you don't have to say another word. I told you when you were seven years old, I would never leave you. I would never abandon you. And whatever you did, you could never stop me from loving you. I've always loved you, and I love you to this day. <laughs> I was reading a brief from a famous politician yesterday, and he said, let me tell you about the Prince of Peace. He said, I've spent all of my career in politics. And he said, if I wanted 
to get the interest of the farmers, I would talk to you about agriculture. But the only ones that would be interested in listening to me are the farmers. And he said, and if I, if I wanted to get the interest of the business owners, I would talk to you about commerce and the sale of goods. And if I wanted to get the interest of the politicians, I would talk to you about government. But he said, in talking to you about government, I would exclude and I would lose the attention of all the others because they were not interested. But he said, if I talk to you about the Prince of Peace, he said, now I've got everybody's attention. Because whether you're a politician or whether you're a lawyer or whether you're a farmer, he said, there is something that everyone in this world has in common, that in one way or another, they worship a God. Whether it's pointing towards Mecca, whether it's bathing in the Ganges like the Hindu, or he said, like myself, knowing the name that's wonderful. He said, there is something ingrained within all of us that we know there is a God. And my question is very simple to you today. I want to know how in the world this, 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 this union thug this guy who never went to church, this guy who, who lived under the shadow and shroud of, of being complicit with the disappearance of, of this high-profile man. I want to know how in the world did Chucky e. O'Brien have the good sense to be able to look at this boy who had walked away from him, who had done everything he could to keep his family from him, who even went so far as to change his name so that he would never be embarrassed when someone would say, wasn't that your stepdad that killed Jimmy Hoffa? I want to know how in the world this guy who really never had a lot of religion, where did that come from? Where did that urge, where did that, 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 that ability to look at this boy who's now a man and say, I told you 35 years ago, I would never abandon you. I would always love you. I am convinced it's a God thing. We were made, the Bible said, fearfully and wonderfully made. And I am convinced that within every one of us, there's a spark of God himself. Because the Bible said, we're going to make man in our image after our likeness. But if you read Genesis 1, it said man was made in his image. But it doesn't say anything about the likeness. But David picked up the theme years later and he said, I will not be content until I awake in his likeness. And a verse in John that said, we don't know what we are right now. But when he knows, we know that when he shall appear... We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he really is. Ladies and gentlemen, I don't care who you are. There is a spark of love and kindness and forgiveness in every one of you that are in this room right now. You didn't get it by yourself. It was hardwired. It was downloaded into you. It's in your spirit DNA. It comes from your creator. And what fascinates me with this whole account is when I read this. I, 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 nothing is more powerful than forgiveness. 
You, you, you would have never had the baptism of the Holy Spirit if there hadn't been a prayer prayed. Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. My point is simple. If a union thug with a dubious past has the ability to unconditionally love a wayward boy who broke his heart, how much more shall the heavenly Father give holy things to them that ask? I found a verse, it's in John 12 and verse six, and, 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 and this is what it says. And this he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the bag and bear what was put. This is Judas Iscariot. This is, this is about the woman that broke that box, and, and that box that, of, of very expensive perfume. And, and Judas is complaining, what a, what a, what a, what a waste this is. That, 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 that this, this could have been sold and given to the poor. And John was the one that inserted this. Isn't it ironic that the guy who said we could have sold this and given to the poor was in fact himself a thief? Jesus knew he was a thief. And people would give money to Jesus. But Jesus let Judas carry the bag. That was the offering bag of people that blessed him and tried to help him. And even though he knew the guy had a problem, he's still trying to trust him with the money to say, I still believe in you. I don't care what your past has held. I don't care what your rap sheet says. I still believe in you. I came here a couple years ago to pray and I was broken because someone said something to me that was very, very hurtful. And so I came here alone and I was over here crying, feeling so sorry for myself. And I just got frustrated. It was like, come on, Jesus, don't you care? And if I've ever heard the voice of the Lord, this is what he impressed on my heart that day. You said you wanted to be like me. And it was like, yeah, I, I, I wanna walk on water. And I, I want to open up people's eyes and, and I, I want to raise dead people. But there's another part of it. And Paul knew this. He said, I've got to have the fellowship of his suffering in order to know the power of his resurrection. <laughs> you want to do the miraculous, you can. But there's another side to the miraculous. There's the mucus that gets spit in your face. The people tearing the hair out of your beard. The marks on your back and on your brow. The holes in your hands. Nobody's going to get out of this without scars. Nobody's going to get out of this without marks. And the thing that absolutely stuns me is the scripture said we don't have someone who has not been tempted in all points like as we are. He knows what it feels like to be abandoned. He knows what it is for his own kids to want nothing to do with him. And yet in the middle of all it, listen to what this guy argues. It's, it's, it's so, if your boy wanted some toast, 
would you give him a rock? If he wanted a fish sandwich, would you give him a snake? If, if he wanted some scrambled eggs, would you rather him get stung by a scorpion? No, a thousand times no. And he said, if you, who really aren't righteous at all, have enough sense to get good things into your kids, how shall the heavenly father, who is far more righteous than anything we could ever wrap our mind around, trust me, I don't care what you've done, he loves you. He loves you. Change your name. Don't let your family go to church. Do whatever you want to to say, I want nothing to do with Jesus. But I promise you there'll come a day when you realize he was still in the truth the whole time. And when I finally have to submit myself to that honest awareness and say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I promise you before you say that too many times, he's gonna say, wait a minute, I let you know a long time ago. I loved you then, I love you now. I have never stopped loving you. Stand. 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 A lot of people know Matthew 28, 19. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. But there's a verse right after that, and it says, teaching them to observe Whatsoever things I have commanded you, for lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. <laughs> There's a scripture that says, He that has made the eye, can he not see? He that has made the ear, can he not hear? It says, His arm is never too short that it can't reach you. Who in the world are you to think? that you are beyond the grasp and the reach of the love of a God, that from the very beginning you were fearfully and wonderfully made. The Bible said we were created by him and for him and for his pleasure. We were, and I'm, I don't care who you are. I don't care how much money you accumulate. I don't care if you live in the snooty part of town. I don't care if you have gold cards to all the boutiques in Somerset. I'm telling you, you're never going to know that type of peace in your life until you realize I was built by Jesus. And my job is to please him with my life. And when you please him with your life, that's when a sense of godliness with contentment. Great game. Come with me around the altar. These kids are going to be pulling up in a couple moments. They're going to pile out of these vans. There's going to be rings under their eyes. They haven't slept probably in three days, some of them. <laughs> I know they're a handful. I, I, I used to be young. I know they're, they're struggling with their own identity. Some of them have got a few pimples in a few very obvious places. Whenever I got a pimple, I never got it. I, I always got it right in the middle of my forehead. I, I just looked like a cyclops. It was so embarrassing to have a giant pimple in the middle of your forehead. <laughs> and I know right now, they're, they're just young. But I, I challenge each and every one of us. Love them. 
of them. I hope there's nobody in this room right now that you have ought in your heart with. I, 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 hope, I hope there isn't. If there is, I, I'm begging you. Paul one time said, I beseech you by the mercies of God. He, he, one time he said, if, if I could die and all of Israel would be saved, I'd be willing to make that trade. I, 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 I'll do anything I can to try and convince you. Don't hold anger and animosity and hatred in your heart. Because it always does more to the vessel that stores it than the vessel upon which it's poured. It'll eat you alive, sir. It'll kill you dead, man. And I promise you, Jesus Christ is just. You want to know how he's going to judge me? The very same way I judge other people. That's what he's going to do. So if I'm going to err, I'm going to err on the side of mercy. If you want to make a mistake, love too much. Forgive too many times. Be merciful more than you were ever expected to be. Because there's going to come a day when you and I are going to need, I know me better than anybody else knows me. And I'm going to need some mercy. And I'm so grateful to have access to the Lord Jesus Christ right now. Lord, Adonai, merciful one. That's who we are. If it's appropriate, would you put your hand on the shoulder of someone right now? Whether you feel qualified or not, it's not about that. I, I, want, I want people to know that just as sure as your hand is on their shoulder and someone else's hand is on your shoulder, I promise you the hand of the Lord is on your life today. And he loves you. And he's more than willing to offer forgiveness and the bomb and the salve that you need to get on with your life. Lord Jesus, this is my brother and this is my sister right now. I may know them well, I may not know them well, but I know you well. And I know what you've done for me. I know how you've treated me. I know how kind and patient and long-suffering you have been with me. And I know that what I've got my hand on now is no more and no less than me. And you are no respecter of persons. And if you've done it for one, you are obligated to do it for 